And I'm extremely pleased to welcome our guest speaker this morning, Dr. James Rucker, um, one of the uh, perhaps few but unmistakable benefits of the pandemic has been the facilitation of virtual conferences, allowing us to bring in remote speakers, uh, bring in in quotation marks, of course, uh, but to have remote speakers join us. And today, Dr. Rucker is joining us all the way uh, from England, London, I believe. Uh, and we've invited him to speak about a topic that you are all uh, aware of and interested in, which is uh, the use of psilocybin for uh, medical reasons and for uh, therapeutic benefit. As you know, Oregon legalized um, uh, or, or Oregon ballot measure 109 allows the use of psychedelic drug psilocybin in supervised facilities. Uh, that, was, that was a bill that was passed in 2020 and will go live after a two year development period, which uh, uh, ends this December. So in 2023, there's going to be uh, implementation of the law uh, and use of uh, therapeutic uh, psychedelics. And so we've invited Dr. Rucker here to speak to us as an expert in this field. Dr. Rucker qualified in medicine at the University College London in 2003. He joined King's College London as a junior psychiatric trainee in 2005 and completed a PhD in psychiatric genetics. He uh, was awarded an NIHR Clinician Scientist Fellowship in 2017 to investigate the safety and efficacy of psilocybin in a controlled setting. And he co-leads the Psychedelic Trials Group at the Center for Affective Disorders. Uh, part of his main academic expertise is in novel psychopharmacological approaches in resistant forms of depression and related conditions, as well as clinical trials in drug-assisted forms of psychotherapeutics, psychotherapy, including the use of psychedelics, MDMA, ketamine, cannabinoids to treat mental health conditions. Uh, it's uh, really an honor to have Dr. Rucker join us. I'll be moderating questions at the end. And uh, Dr. Rucker, I'll turn it to you. Thank you for joining us. A, a pleasure, Jesse, and many thanks for the invitation. It's um, an honor to speak to you all today. So I'm talking to you from sunny London, three o'clock here. Um, I um, found myself sort of catapulted into this position of testing um, psilocybin therapy as a treatment for depression, but my my broader interest as a clinician has always been treatment resistant depression um, with people who don't get better uh, and how we can help them. So um, I've come at this from that perspective um, I'm aware of the change of the law in Oregon, not quite sure what I think about it. Um, and my um, my route through this really is quite traditional as far as um, we're testing psilocybin therapy in the established way that, that all drugs and new therapies are tested um, via the FDA and its equivalents around the world through the clinical trials process. So that's what I'm going to talk to you a bit about today. Um, also a bit about treatment resistant depression, why it's a problem, just refresh our knowledge about that, um, and also some of the history uh, of um, psychedelic therapy because it goes back uh, quite a long way and it's important to understand uh, that history when we consider where we are now. Okay, so just some disclosures by me. I'm, I'm employed by the university. My salary is paid by the UK taxpayer. Um, I work in the NHS, but I do um, advisory work for various um, 
companies who are interested in in this field don't have any investments or shareholdings and they have various grants uh, that are held by King's College London here in which we use to do our research um, and I will tell you about some of those, a couple of those trials today. Um, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to go, I may skip some of it just to keep to time. I'm aware that um, we need to leave some time for questions but this is what I hope to to go through. I'm going to concentrate on some of the clinical trials that we have recently completed uh, and then think about some of the pitfalls of, of um, these trials and psilocybin therapy in general, given the historical context and the way that um, this field tends to sort of polarise opinions. But just a quick reminder of treatment resistant depression and um, the definition of this varies, but tends to be a failure to respond um, to two antidepressants. Um, the problem is that it's common, about 10 to 30% of people with major depressive disorder come treatment resistance according to this definition and the problem with that is that depression itself is incredibly common uh, and burdensome um, both to people, carers and to wider society. Um, and an example of that is that um, if you uh, have a diagnosis of major depression then um, statistically you're about 21 times more likely uh, to commit suicide than uh, your non-depressed um, equivalent. So big problem for society, not just suicide of course, but other um, various correlates of um, poor mental health, and, um, physical health, socioeconomic activity, etc. And this is why um, governments are concerned about it, even though historically, of course, mental health does not get uh, the sort of funding that it really needs. Um, some of the comorbidities of TRD, you're probably much aware of these, um, very comorbid with anxiety, um, suicide risk, that sort of thing. Um, so TRD is a big problem. Um, one of the issues that we have in treatment is that if you um, have early childhood trauma, then you are much less likely to respond to established treatments. Um, so this is the ISPOD trial published back in 2016 that stratified uh, responders and remitters between those who did not report um, uh, childhood abuse at the age of four to seven and those that did. And you can see that the rates of response and remission to treatment are startlingly different between those who did not suffer abuse and those who suffer abuse. So there's something um, about uh, the etiology of treatment-resisted depression that may be important in understanding what new treatments we need to develop. And one wonders whether drug-catalyzed forms of psychotherapy may be useful uh, in this group that historically do not respond well to established treatments. That's just a hypothesis, um, but one that we're interested to test in clinical trials. And we need to do that because, um, as I say, TRD is common and we rapidly run out of options um, with um, antidepressant treatments. Uh, there are lots of Me Too drugs around, um, but they're all sort of variations on theme. And generally speaking, if someone fails a couple of SSRIs, they're unlikely to respond to another one. We can switch, we can add on, um, but we quite um, rapidly run out of novel mechanisms of action to try uh, and then we're getting into the realms of lithium, ECT, RTMS which have problems of their own. So developing 
new strings to our pharmaceutical or therapeutic bow um, is an important area of research and one, as I say, that has formed and forged my career. Um, we know that psychotherapy um, in combination with drugs works well um, for treatment-resistant depression, so um, studies showing that you're about three times more likely to um, respond or remit if you have psychotherapy in addition to your antidepressant. Um, and also we know that if you give people what they want, then they're more likely to get better than if you give them something they don't want. So this is the trial that stratifies people according to their preferred treatment, randomizes them to medication psychotherapy in combination, and then looks at um, response rates, remission rates, um, according to the type of treatment they received. So if you wanted medication, you received medication, you would like to get better with medication, the same as psychotherapy makes sense really but of course we're not often in a position to do that um, you might be more in the states but in the uk more or less so um so do people want psilocybin therapy um the question which you might assume the answer to which was was no because of the stigma but actually um in a recent uh, nationwide survey in the uk 59% of people surveyed would consider psilocybin-assisted therapy for themselves if they had a condition where there was strong evidence it could be effective. Quite a surprising figure to me. Um, this was also a survey about uh, research restrictions in the UK of which many people support the relaxation of. Um, so perhaps this is indicative of a sort of change in the air surrounding um, drugs that have hitherto been stigmatised, criminalised, etc. Uh, but there does seem to be an appetite from the public to explore it. So what is this paradigm of um, psilocybin assisted therapy? Uh, a few things to understand. Um, firstly, don't concentrate too much on the drug. This is a drug treatment embedded in an ongoing process of psychotherapy, and I think the psychotherapy is um, predominant here. Uh, the drug is given intermittently, never given daily, not, take, not given to take home, uh, delivered in a hospital setting. So it's an intermittent drug treatment embedded in the process of therapy. And that is the way it was used prior to in the UK, the 71 Misuse Drugs Act, in the US, the 1968 Controlled Substances Act, which essentially banned all clinical use of psilocybin LSD related compounds. So what we're doing now is basically very similar to what we were doing back then, although with the caveat, clinical trials have to be a lot more controlled. Just quickly to cover the different psychedelics, we're principally interested in psilocybin. It was actually LSD and mescaline that were used principally prior to prohibition around 1970. There's also some interest in the use of dimethyltryptamine at the moment. Again, there's a sort of drug catalyzed form of psychotherapy. So we seem to have switched from the phenethylamines and the ergolides to the tryptamines. Regardless, they all do the same um, thing, um, which is induce this dreamlike state. Um, one of the participants in our trials described it as like a waking dream. Um, so but what's different from a dream is that you can remember what's happened. Uh, you generally retain insight into what's going on. Um, and 
we wonder whether that might be an adjunct uh, or a window of opportunity in the context of ongoing psychotherapy and a safe and supportive um, context of delivery. So this is a trial that we completed and published um, a couple of months ago now, uh, largest ever RCT of psilocybin in healthy volunteers. I'll tell you a bit more about it later, but this is um, the results from a scale called the 11 dimensions altered state of consciousness questionnaire and you can see those 11, 11 dimensions plotted around the circle here the extent to which participants rate those dimensions um, under psilocybin 25 milligrams in blue psilocybin 10 milligrams in orange when you subtract the placebo effect so you can see as you might expect audiovisual synesthesia blissful states complex imagery um, uh, insightfulness, spiritual experiences, all getting um, rated uh, quite significantly highly, but um, not so much um, anxiety, impaired control, and, and cognition, and uh, disembodiment, which um, is, uh, distinguishes these drugs a bit from um, ketamine, uh, which has a similar mechanism of action, but different in a way, but tends to result in more dis dissociation and disembodiment. Uh, why does this effect happen? Um, it's a functionally selective um, effect on the 5-HT2A receptor. I say functionally selective because not all 5-HT2A agonists cause psychedelic effects. Um, so it is something about the precise conformation of changes in the 5-HT2A receptor that um, mediates the uh, subjective effects under psilocybin, LSD, etc. We know this is the 2A receptor that is principally responsible for the subjective experience. That might not be related to the antidepressant effects, of course, but for the subjective experience, it's the 2A receptor that's doing the job. And we know that because if you give participants a 2A antagonist and a psychedelic, they don't, they can't distinguish that from a placebo. And also uh, the potency of different psychedelic drugs correlates very tightly with the affinity with the stickiness of the drug at the 5-HT2 receptor. We also know from more modern studies um, using PET neuroimaging that the occupancy of the 5-HT2A receptor as measured by PET is um, tightly correlated with um, concentration of, in this case, psilocin, which is the active metabolite of psilocybin. Uh, and this is tightly correlated to people's subjective uh, the subjective intensity of effects. So it's the 2A receptor and this 2A receptor is predominantly located in the neocortex, uh, particularly in layer 5 of the neocortex, but particularly in regions of the brain that are interesting in terms of depression, the anterior and posterior cingulate, for example, but also in the visual um, association cortices in the occipital lobe, which um, explain uh, the visual experiences, misperceptions and occasional hallucinations that people report um, under these drugs. Many reasons to think why psychedelics uh, might have antidepressant properties, so they share certain um, effects with antidepressants, lithium, ketamine, etc. as far as they stimulate uh, neural outgrowth, dendritic complexity, uh, so they may be uh, what's called psychoplastogens, stimulating neurogenesis. Um, they also have interesting effects on circulating um, levels of cytokines that are also implicated in depression, such as uh, 16 or 13, and in this case, 
tumor process factor alpha brings into play an interesting discussion about whether they might be effective in low doses for inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, but no one has explored that. Good for a trial though. Um, but what happens in the brain is that it becomes deconstrained. So bits of the brain that don't normally talk to each other start talking to each other. That's represented by these two um, diagrams here, A under placebo, B under psilocybin. And around the circumference of these circles, you have different brain regions and then the lines in between represent the degree of functional connectivity uh, between them. So um, it's not that brain activity is increased. You might infer that from this slide. That's not what it's trying to say. What it's saying is that it's deconstrained. So there's increased crosstalk between regions, increased entropy, increased disorder in a sense. Um, and this probably underpins this dreamlike state that people um, report. And of course, one sees similar things in um, dreams. EEG changes, um, suppression of cortical alpha, for example, again, um, seen in stages of sleep. And the question again is, does this lead to a clinically useful state of temporary cognitive flexibility in which you can break down bad habits, perhaps challenge depressive cognitions, um, challenge uh, the behaviours that mediate addictions, or anorexia, trauma response, anxiety. Is that um, possible if the drugs are delivered in a safe, supported and trusting context and within um, an ongoing process of psychotherapy? That's the idea. That was the way they were used before. Um, but we're kind of starting again. Um, this is a UK psychiatrist called Ronald Sanderson, and he had a LSD psychotherapy centre in um, a hospital called Powick in Worcester in the sort of Midlands in the UK and he was interviewed um, in 2000, around 2000 uh, and this is what he said, um, LSD does not behave like any drug in the pharmacopoeia but the effect varies not only from one person to another but in the same person on different occasions. It's not a drug in the specific sense of other remedies, I saw it as a tool for the promotion of psychotherapy and I still maintain the same opinion. Today, when LSD is regarded by its protagonists as a recreational drug, it's difficult to understand the esoteric nature of this remarkable substance. Those of us who use this in clinical practice developed a reverence for its properties, rather as the shamans of old regarded their magical plants. There's so much in this statement um, that is interesting. Um, clearly, he was um, he was rather enamoured of LSD, and I think that that is a problem um, because obviously one brings that certain lack of objectivity into the room. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that this is these drugs are special in inverted commas, not special, but need to be thought of in a different way. Um, and they seem to make people sensitive to the context, which may explain why they are useful tools in psychotherapy or why they may be useful tools in psychotherapy. And what we're doing with LSD, what we would doing with LSD then is broadly the same as what we're doing with psilocybin now, except for the caveat that um, all psilocybin, generally speaking, is given within a clinical trial at the moment, so therefore not controlled. I'm not going to go through this just to say that um, there's a long history to the use of psychedelics um, in medicine, in uh, the Western world's first descriptions were actually um, around 1899. Um, mescaline was actually the first thing um, synthesized. It was used 
sparingly um, and it was LSD that came to be predominant partly because it was developed by a pharmaceutical company Sandoz uh, which is now a part of Novartis and it was marketed and given away for free as a sort of experimental agent so that's part of the reason why LSD became so popular um, and the same guy actually synthesized um, psilocybin as well Albert Hoffman again with Sandoz and that was available made available again um, under the brand name Indocybin psychedelics then diffused out of the clinic um, got swept up in the war on drugs, particularly the uh, Vietnam War and countercultural opposition to that and subsequent to um, criminalisation um, around the world the research essentially stopped and it's only in the last 20 years or so that this is slowly um, and with some care being picked up. These are two pictures of the bottles of psilocybin and LSD as they used to be available in the late 50s and early 60s um, but subsequent to the UN Convention on Drugs uh, in 1961 and then in 1971 a variety um, of national laws were passed including the Controlled Substances Act in the US and in the UK and this is Drugs Act 1971 and these placed psychedelics in Schedule 1 and what Schedule 1 defines is that the drugs are not prescribable by doctors. So at a stroke, um, all prescription for routine clinical purposes was um, stopped. Not going to go through this, I've kind of gone through this, um, but uh, this was sort of part of the reason for um, that guillotine, if you like, legal guillotine. Um, um, to control psychedelic drugs, but one wonders a bit whether it threw the baby out of the bathwater. Quite a sort of healthy um, research activity going on pre-Schedule 1, lots of clinical trials, patients being given the drug, and after Schedule 1, uh, after criminalisation, uh, that research petered out, and it's um, really only in the past 10 years or so that it's started to pick up again. A couple of this paper I wrote recently. So basically we're starting again uh, with psilocybin, um, but it's not the only one. Uh, uh, S-ketamine is now available and so a stigmatised drug of abuse. Um, MDMA is actually further along than psilocybin and is going through phase three trials at the moment. And psilocybin we are in phase two moving into phase three. And of course we are asking the same questions that we ask of any new treatment. Is it safe relative to the disease that it's meant to treat and is it um, effective or efficacious relative to placebo. It's a very expensive process, a very long-winded process and these drugs may fail uh, and that's okay. If they do fail then we'll try something else but I do think it's important that they go through the same tests as any other drug, any other therapy and I think it's important not to short-circuit that. So for the remainder of this talk, I'm going to concentrate on two trials. Um, we started with a healthy volunteers trial here at King's. Uh, we started planning this back in 2017, started dosing 2018, finished in 2019, um, and then um, pandemic and publication stuff, which you will know, uh, we finally published this paper in three months ago. It's the largest ever um, randomised controlled trial of psilocybin published in the journal um, and it's a healthy volunteers trial and it was about safety um, and 
cognitive and emotional processing. So I'm going to tell you a bit about this. We dosed 89 healthy volunteers. We randomized them to receive a single dose of either placebo, 10 milligrams or 25 milligrams of psilocybin, which the sponsor calls COVID 360, but it's psilocybin. Um, you can see the inclusion criteria there. It's not difficult to recruit people to this trial, um, as you can imagine. And this trial was used as a therapist training vehicle for the multi-center international treatment resistant depression trial that uh, was completed last year by the same sponsor, in which I'll tell you about a little bit later. So nearly 90 people randomized to placebo, 10 milligrams, 25 milligrams of psilocybin given on a single dosing day with baseline um, observations and then data collection at day one, day seven, day 28, and then the end of the study was day 84. Primary um, point of the study was one of safety uh, and also to um, look at the effects of single doses of psilocybin on cognitive and emotional processing. This was the setting that we gave the psilocybin in. Um, the unique thing about the study was that we gave the psilocybin to more than one person at the same time. So in this picture, you can see two people um, who have been given psilocybin and placebo. There are two people behind them as well. And we gave um, we gave up to six participants the drug simultaneously. No one's done that before. Um, this is the recruitment process. So. Um, you can see how many we screened, how many we excluded, um, and there was not much dropout in the psilocybin arms, a bit of dropout in the placebo arms, and I suspect that that speaks so, to some degree about problems of blinding and expectancy in these trials, which I will also cover later on. Now, this is the data that we collected, um, essentially used a tool called the CANTAB, um, which is a well-established uh, cognitive um, measurement tool. I'll take you through the tests that we use in a minute. Uh, various other um, assessments I'm not going to tell you about today, don't have time, and then uh, adverse events data. And these were the people um, and the randomization process we see pretty um, equal between the groups. Um, slightly more males and females, as is often the case in drug trials. Um, more people in this trial had previous psychedelic exposure than in the general population, so bear that in mind. Baseline rates of prior psychedelic experience is about 10 to 15 percent in the general population lifetime. Um, in this study it was near nearly 40 percent, so slightly unrepresentative sample. And you can see how many times we gave um, psilocybin to more than one um, person in the column on the bottom right. So. Uh, gave it to six people on two occasions. The majority of sessions were given to four participants. These are the most common adverse events um, ordered by incidence in the 25 milligram um, psilocybin arm. You can also see the 10 milligram and the placebo groups there. Some people under placebo report hallucinations, um, which is a known phenomenon, and then you can see uh, the extent to which these different uh, events were reported in uh, the two groups. Um, as you would expect, really, um, hallucinations, illusions, altered mood, headache is common post um, psychedelic or 
for reasons we're not entirely clear of, probably this sort of synergic mechanism of action, changes in moods, changes in the perception of time, um, etc. etc. Um, the vast majority of these adverse events um, were happened on the day and resolved on the day. Um, and the majority of them also were psychedelic in nature. That is to say, they are they were considered a known effect of a psychedelic. Um, the major message from this trial was that if we recorded an adverse event, it was very unlikely to persist. Um, and for those that did persist, they were very unlikely to be attributable to psilocybin. Um, so they were more sort of incidental things like colds or or headaches or that sort of thing. Um, so suggests that the safety profile for the drug is relatively good. Um, we did a breakdown of mood altered adverse events and 10% of these were 10% of these were coded in mood, mood orders and the vast majority of those um, were uh, positive in nature um, by post hoc analysis. Um, and three and a half percent um, were rated as negative. So that's reassuring um, that psilocybin is at least not making healthy volunteers feel a lot worse and maybe um, making them feel a bit better. The sort of head, but the headline is that there were no serious adverse events in the study, um, so nothing that we thought that was a serious threat to someone's health. Um, and there were no adverse events in this trial that led to someone withdrawing from the trial lots of expected psychedelic effects, uh, but most of these resolved um, by the next day and the remaining were most usually positive. There was one instance of negative mood on psilocybin 10 milligrams, uh, this resolved in the follow-up. So um, it's an unusual drug, it's obviously a very noticeable drug, but actually it seems relatively benign, um, it's fairly good clinical safety profile. I just sort of caveat that by saying you know, when I sign the prescriptions for these drugs, I don't particularly worry about them. I kind of worry more about prescribing someone the lanzapine and you know the risk of sedation and falls and weight gain and metabolic syndrome. I, I don't really worry about prescribing people psilocybin, but that's not to say um, that risky things don't happen on occasion. Um, but we didn't involve, we didn't observe anything serious in this trial. And I'm sure we will do in future trials, and given enough time, serious stuff always happens, but of course that happens with drugs that we prescribe already. So this is the cognitive data. Um, we focused on various measures of the CAMTAB. I'm going to show you little videos of the um, tests that people did, should play. Um, so this is a test of episodic memory, paired associates learning, or and shown the number of boxes with symbols and then they're covered up and the symbols appear on the screen and you have to remember uh, where which box contained which symbol. So that's a simple test of episodic memory. Um, spatial working memory task, essentially showing a series of boxes, some of which have um, yellow boxes in, and you have to fill up the column. Pretty easy test of working memory and executive function. Um, Rapid visual processing is a measure of sustained attention, so you have to recognise that sequence, 357, as it appears, and then press the button, so you have to sustain your attention over time. 
emotional recognition task where you're showed um, briefly um, various faces and then have to um, say what emotion you see and you're essentially timed on your reaction. And a planning task for one touch stockings of Cambridge where you have to mimic uh, the pattern you see at the top um, by moving the balls in the bottom. Uh, so you have to plan your moves um, to complete the puzzle. So. And finally, um, cognitive flexibility, the intra-extra dimensional set shift in here, you just have to make a guess and through feedback work out what the theme is. Here it's that funny building that looks like the Tartan Hall, um, but you only work that out over time and you're tested on how quickly you work that out. And these are the results. Um, and they're really not that interesting. So uh, I'm going to sort this through them. We basically didn't find any negative or positive effect uh, of um, either 25 milligrams or 10 milligrams of psilocybin when compared to placebo. People tend to get better at these tasks through practice effects, um, but there are no significant differences between groups. And you can see that in these graphs here. So I just slowly cycle through these you can see what's happening this is a composite um, in which you essentially combine the scores for um, different um, different tasks that measure the um, measure similar things again no significant differences between the groups possible that we were underpowered to detect a difference um, this wasn't a priority powered as an exploratory study, but uh, to be honest, the data looks as though there's much difference. And clinically, I don't really know why you would expect um, to see a big difference between uh, placebo and single doses of a psychedelic drug. Like their magic. The one thing that I thought was a bit interesting uh, was this like, slight dose dependent effect on emotional recognition. You can see SIBO some 25 milligrams. Well done. Um, the reason why that's interesting is because other groups have observed um, that people under the influence of psychedelics and art psychedelics uh, become more emotionally responsive. Um, so it's possible that we were seeing this phenomenon here, but again, it was not statistically different and significantly different between the groups. So maybe underpowered, or maybe that there is no uh, significant effect, or no significant effect here with the planning task. So um, no statistically significant changes, um, and the basic conclusion is that this drug seems to be relatively safe for delivery in a clinical trial setting uh, and doesn't cause harmful changes in cognitive function, say it's treatment for depression. So um, that allows us really a decent basis to go on to trials and patients. And that's what I'm going to tell you about now. The caveat here is that this, um, the results I'm going to show you have not been peer reviewed uh, and not been published yet. They've just been released top line data by the sponsor last year. But this was a very large multi-center international trial of psilocybin and therapy for treatment resistant depression that we were principal center of here in the UK and which we trained the therapists for in the previous trial that I showed you. These are compasses, the sponsors slides, again COMP360 is um, psilocybin. Um, and essentially what we're testing here is 
um, whether uh, people with treatment-resistant depression who are withdrawn from their antidepressants and given a package of psychological support, are testing the difference between three doses of psilocybin, one milligram, 10 milligrams, and 25 milligrams. Um, and this is the way the study um, proceeded at 20 sites around the world. Um, people were screened, um, uh, the study team got to know them, they were introduced to the psychotherapists who engaged with them, and they were withdrawn from their antidepressants over a three to six week period prior to baseline. They were then randomised uh, to receive one or 10 or 25 milligrams of psilocybin, along with psychological support delivered in a similar setting to the picture I showed you earlier, though um, differently to that, they were given them, uh, they weren't given this in groups, uh, they were given this uh, just with their therapists one by one. Uh, and then they were followed up on um, day two, week one, week two, week three, and finally week 12 with some remote visits in between. And a package of psychological support was given during that time. Um, therapists were available for um, psychotherapy at those times and also in between times if necessary. So again, testing this idea of drug catalyzed psychotherapy, but in this context, the only difference between the groups is the dose of psilocybin. And the primary endpoint um, is essentially to determine, disambiguate between the 10 milligram and the 25 milligram doses in terms of efficacy and safety. So here are um, the people who were randomized um, and the number who discontinued roughly um, equivalent between the groups. In this study, 94% had no prior psilocybin experience, so much, um, much closer to the population demographic of um, previous psilocybin use, that's slightly less. Um, so hopefully it's like a more representative sample. And these were the, this was a primary outcome, the Montgomery Asperger depression rating scale, well accepted, well validated, clinician administered measurement of depression. The important thing to understand about this is that the teams did not collect the outcome measure. This was done by blinded, independent, geographically remote raters. Uh, over the telephone, so we have no involvement at all in the collection of the primary outcome, which hopefully uh, mitigates some of the concerns very blinding uh, clinicians. And you can see the difference here uh, between the three groups um, along the um, trajectory of follow-up. So you can see a rapid effect on Madras scores in all groups, but statistically significantly different between the um, 25 milligram group and one milligram group and this is sustained up until week six when it becomes non-statistically significant. These are the people who respond on the MADRAS where response is a 50% decrease in MADRAS uh, over the different time periods and within the different groups. And what you can see is the response rate of about 50% versus 22% in the um, 25 milligram and 1 milligram groups respectively and you can see this response rate tapering off over time and then this curious rebound at the end of group 12 which um, I suspect we need to treat with a pinch of salt because you'd probably be expecting it to be roughly the same between groups rather than that, I'm not quite sure what that's about. Um, 
So kind of what we'd expect really from seeing the dose uh, of a drug that um, it has an effect, but then it starts to wear off. But you know, interesting that it's um, sustained for this length of time. And similar picture seen for remission. So a Madras total score of less than 10, obviously less people remit than respond. Um, but you can see the difference between the groups there. And again, there's like a curious artifact again, which maybe it's with end of study artifact. But um, for a treatment resistant group, uh, these are people who had failed um, a minimum of two and a maximum of four antidepressants. Uh, still some encouraging signs of efficacy here. Um, these are the sustained responders at week 12, so people um, who met the Madras response criteria week three and week 12 and at least one of the visits for week six and nine and you didn't start any new treatments for their depression. Uh, only about a quarter of people uh, in this group, um, but perhaps that's what you would expect in the population who are this um, treatment resistant and unwell. And safety signs, um, you can see this is having a similar, similar adverse event profile to the Healthy Volunteer Study, but what we were interested in is, was the serious adverse events. These were comparable between the 10 and 25 milligram group, but I think what's important to understand is that there were more um, serious adverse events in the groups that received the higher doses of psilocybin. That needs to be thought about carefully in the context of whether these drugs are a bit of a gamble. Um, there was a suicide in this study, I think there were um, suicide attempts in the study. There was, it was a significantly different between the group, but obviously we need to keep an eye on this and study each case very carefully indeed to understand what's happening. And these are the um, adverse events that were recorded, again, similar um, to what you uh, saw before. In this study, we weren't recording things like hallucinations because they were known effects by that time uh, of the drugs, so we had to record those as adverse events. Um, and again, headache, very common in um, those people given um, psilocybin, usually responds to simple treatment with um, acetaminophen ibuprofen, that sort of thing. And then adverse events really is we would expect in this sort of study. Uh, these are the serious adverse events. Um, three instances of suicidal behaviour in the 25 milligram group. I'll talk a little bit about that um, later, whether it's a direct effect of the drug or whether it's a sort of disappointment effect with knowing that you've got the drug and it's not working. Um, and then uh, other, uh, other issues, as you can see down the left hand side there. So this was the largest ever um, psilocybin therapy trial by far. Um, the largest trial to this was an N equal 60 study that took place here in London. Um, but just caveat, it's not been peer reviewed and published yet, so take these results with a pinch of salt. Um, I thought the results of this were quite reassuring and they were they were worse than the sort of ridiculous effect sizes that we were seeing in the um, early phase two trials um, in single centres, but that's what you'd expect, regression to the mean. Um, so in many ways, I thought that that was quite reassuring. Um, this is not a miracle panacea, but it may, um, but there is some um, 
also a sign of efficacy in um, we should proceed on to phase three, I think, but with a mind to the safety signals that we see. Um, I'm not sure what time is and how much time I've got left. Oh, okay. So um, next steps, we will um, probably start uh, phase three trials. Um, uh, when they said course three 2022, I think that's probably quite optimistic to be honest, but uh, I suspect probably next year. Um, and that will be a um, sort of similar pipeline of um, provision that we gave in the phase two P trial. Um, and all of this done in liaison with FDA in the US, MHRA in the UK, EMA in Europe to make a final decision about whether this drug is safe and effective, whether this drug assisted therapy is safe and effective. And for the rest of the talk, I just want to talk about some of the problems with these trials because there are many. Of course, there's no perfect trial, there never will be. Um, and trials of psychoactive drugs are particularly problematic. Of course, many of the say many of the issues I'm going to talk about apply to antidepressants, where people can tell that they're on them, and psychotics, etc. But I think probably particularly um, pertinent in um, psychedelic trials, uh, particularly given the sort of cultural baggage that they tend to bring with them. Okay, so the most obvious one think about blinding um, and expectancy it just isn't possible to blind people um, from receiving uh, a psychedelic unless you gave it to them under an anesthetic or something like that which probably wouldn't be ethical so um, given that these trials tend to attract people with positive expectations about psilocybin therapy we can't force people uh, to enter into trials we have to take people who volunteer and they are likely to be um, biased in favor of psilocybin uh, and because we can't effectively blind, that is likely to bias the data in favour of psilocybin therapy. Similar problems, as I say, um, we've seen with most psychoactive drug trials, and this you know, is one of the reasons why the antidepressant efficacy board rage on, on Twitter. Uh, of course, it applies to many other forms of treatment. You can't blind surgical interventions, you can't blind psychotherapy. Um, does this mean we shouldn't do the trials? I would say not. So I disagree. Just to re-emphasise this point, everyone in these trials got psychological support. We know psychological support is effective um, in the treatment of depression and the idea for the real world is that psilocybin therapy is a drug-assisted psychotherapy. So what you're seeing in these trials is just the difference between the different doses of the drug, uh, not the um, differences between um, psychotherapy because everyone gets psychotherapy. But what that suggests is that the real world efficacy may actually be better because um, everyone will be getting psychotherapy. Um, so better compared to not getting anything at all, although that is obviously going to be dependent on there being decent psychotherapists and enough of them to deliver this. Um, there's an awful lot of hype and hyperbole uh, around psychedelics at the moment. Uh, I think this causes a lot of problems. The media jump on the bandwagon. This um, fuels investor, investor confidence. You get this sort of cycle of hype, uh, and this creates bias in people who volunteer for the trial too. It probably creates bias in people who are collecting outcome data uh, and in the trial teams. Again, something that biases the data in favour of psilocybin. Of course, this is seen, similar phenomena are seen um, with other drugs. This happened with Prozac to an extent in the 80s, 
Um, probably not to the same extent as, as this, though. It's really unclear what can be done about it um, if we continue with this model of commercial investment being needed for treatment development. Hitherto, governments have delegated the process of treatment development to pharmaceutical industries where they are profit motivated uh, and they need investors. Uh, so that's the nature of the beast. Unless we entirely change society and government starts funding drug development, which it probably should, to be honest, but that's not the way it is. Uh, that's uh, the way it's going to be. But we need to consider that, of course. Just thinking about safety data, I've mentioned this already could be that suicidal behaviour is a direct adverse effect of psilocybin. From my knowledge of the narrative of the serious adverse effects that happened in this trial, I'd say it's more likely to be um, route two, which is that if the drug doesn't work and you come with a lot of positive expectation and are quite desperate, uh, it's very disappointing. And this then compounds your depression and you're more likely to then um, to behave uh, in a way that's classified as a serious adverse event. Can't rule out, of course, the, the, the possibility of a direct adverse drug effect, but um, uh, that wasn't really the narrative that I observed in the trials. But, you know, all of these problems with trials, that's just the start. Let's just assume that it's approved. Um, I think that opens up a whole new raft of questions, I suppose, maybe um, in some way interrogated by what Oregon is doing. Um, who gatekeeps this treatment? Um, who pays for this treatment? Uh, it's likely to be expensive relative to other treatments. Who delivers it? We're going to need armies of carefully regulated psychotherapists, psychiatrists, you understand. Um, and using what infrastructure? Uh, we have a very drug focused um, model of delivery of mental health care thus far, but this is different. This is a different paradigm. People need to come into a facility to have their experience to have ongoing psychotherapy. Uh, where's the infrastructure for that? I think probably we can modify existing mental health infrastructure, but that's going to take time and money. And then how to regulate it, how to keep the quality, um, how to maintain safety. And this is a, a, a key issue. And some of you may have come across a podcast recently called Cover Story, which covers um, narratives of really horrendous abuse um, in the underground psychedelic therapy um, world that happens around the world, but then also covers concerns that this is this has happened in uh, clinical trials as well. Um, something about these drugs obviously putting people into vulnerable states, we need to be exquisitely careful uh, that safety, oversight um, and regulation are maintained. This is going to be a sustainable treatment. And yet at the same time, you have articles like this. This is the guy who heads the multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies that funds um, the trials of MDMA assisted psychotherapy PTSD that are now in phase three. And, and he, he has he writes articles with titles like this. And now, I don't agree. We need to keep equipoise. Equipoise is so important here um, and it's um, at risk of being lost. Um, so um, I'm trying to do this the right way um, and if it fails I don't mind I'll go and research something else. Um, my interest is in the patients and therapy and the drugs and how they work. Um, this is what we're doing at King's, a variety of different different trials and various um, stages of development. Um, this is what next for us. 
uh, phase three trials of economic analyses to see whether this is a cost effective treatment. And the critical question, I think, is whether we can add psilocybin therapy to an SSRI the moment we take people off their antidepressants. That may not be necessary. Um, lots of other interesting questions to ask with these drugs. Um, should I go through now? So this is my take home message. Beware evangelism, but beware demonization as well. Stick to the science. Hopefully the data will speak for itself. Quick summary, what we talked about. Um, and um, these um, are the lovely people who want to take this work here at King's. Um, but there are many such groups around the world, including in the US. I'll stop there. Some time for questions. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Rucker. Very, uh, very stimulating and interesting discussion here. And I invite our attendees to post questions in the chat. I'll uh, get to them as uh, as you post them. We've got a few minutes here. A few questions that have come through, Dr. Rucker. Um, first is just simply when when psilocybin or psychedelic therapy does work for reducing depression associated scores, why do you think that's happening? What is it about this experience that is resulting in a sustained improvement in depression? Uh, so many ways to think about that. Um, you could think about it from a biological perspective that it's stimulating glutamate surge in the prefrontal cortex that is stimulating neurogenesis in regions that are uh, related to depression and that's the reason why people get better. Um, I tend to think of it more in a terms of subjective experience and the what people can take away from that experience. So Johns Hopkins team um, correlated uh, the extent to which people had a mystical experience with sustained improvements um, from psilocybin therapy. That in a sense, that sort of makes sense to me insofar as a lot of people I see with depression, they seem to have lost their sense of faith, they lost their sense of connection to themselves. Maybe the mystical experience is about the redevelopment of a connection to the self or the redevelopment of a connection to something else that forms a foundation of your sense of mental well-being. Um, I think there's something very interesting there and I probably would lean towards that as uh, a narrative that most people could attach to and understand um, as a reason why single doses of a drug may lead to uh, long-term improvements in mental health that is essentially sows a psychological seed that you take away with you and depending on the ongoing psychotherapy in the context of your life um, that uh, that, can, that can grow. That would be the way I think. On a similar line, what what uh, what does the data show us uh, in terms of the longest treatment effect that we've seen? So um, say somebody does have a positive response early on, do we have What's the longest we know of of a sustained improvement? Well, um, so some people in the early phase trials I was involved with in, at Imperial received two doses of psilocybin therapy and were highly treatment resistant and have been well ever since, according to them. Um, of course, that's sort of non-objective and I don't know about the people who um, you know report the reverse, but there are some people who seem to have very, very sustained um, um, remission from depressive symptoms and a couple of people that I'm thinking about in that trial have been on you know, 10 different antidepressants over years of psychotherapy. Something happened 
in those sessions that just sh shifted their perspective away from this very depressive, habitual mindset of bleakness and fearing the world and other people and themselves terrible. But also there was this is a strong psychological element that I'm being given this new amazing thing, you know, that's that that's, that they say is going to cure me. So I think there's something strongly context dependent about that specific child and the improvements that those specific people um, had. Whether or not that happens in um, the multi-center trials, we will see because there's a long term follow up trial that's currently completing at the moment. And can you give us a sense, uh, in a, just in a practical sense, if somebody was going to, let's say this gets approved and you know we're expecting next year these these treatment clinics or, or facilities to be set up, whatever that's going to look like. What What is it? What is the uh, like? How long does a treatment session last in, in a, a given session? And then what is the expected number of sessions a person would go through? Yeah, so as I say, it's sort of it's, it's, at the moment we're testing single doses. Um, and that was a sort of decision based upon the sort of stigma and safety concerns around the drug. But the idea is that this would be a process of drug assisted psychotherapy in which you have a number of sessions embedded in an ongoing process of psychotherapy. And I think that the data probably suggests, given that the effect seems to wear off after about six weeks, that that's the sort of time period you should be thinking about in terms of um, space between different sessions. But I think it needs to be considered on an individual basis. Um, I don't think it's useful to think of this as a one one experience and you're cured. That's just that's just completely unrealistic from my perspective. Um, the clinical trials process has to be very regimented and you have to say exactly what you're going to do. I think if the drug gets through improvement, if the therapy gets through improvement, then we can start to think about how to deliver it in a way that's more flexible to people's needs. And within a when it within a treatment session, how long does that usually last? Somebody receives a dose, and then how long are they, uh, you know, on that on that couch, uh, seeing dreams? Yeah, sorry, I forgot that bit of the question. Um, so it's a day hospital treatment. So you come in in the morning. Um, we usually dose around nine thirty to ten o'clock, and it's over by five thirty six. Um, so it's not quite nine to five. It's more like a sort of twelve hour shift um, when all's said and done. But it's deliverable. You don't have to keep people overnight, um, which is important in terms of thinking about costs. And is that usually the duration of a of the psychedelic experience? Are people having the? Is it, you know, eight hours or so? Is that a typical uh, duration of, of hallucinations or whatever kind of experiences they're having? I usually find the effects. They come on after about half an hour. Uh, they then sort of ramp up over the course of the next hour. They then um, are most intense for 90 minutes after that, and then they fade away over the course of the next three to four hours. Okay. And last question uh, here. Um, so you mentioned expectations, and you know people get a benefit tend to get a benefit from things they believe in, and um, it looked like in those the uh, I think that phase one part of Compass about 30% of patients had had a prior psychedelic experience. Any thoughts on what uh, what effect or benefit might be in somebody who has a a very negative uh, perception of you know drugs and uh, controlled substances like this is. How much of this do you think really is that uh, that set uh, mindset of uh, believing this will work versus, you know, uh, truly a benefit? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I believe in the power of belief and I think every doctor and every psychiatrist uses this every day to try and find treatments that fit for different people. Um, if you're a priori against psychedelics, why on earth would you have psilocybin therapy? It just seems ridiculous. Um, on the other hand, what I tend to find is that people who are anti-SSRIs tend not to be so anti-psilocybin and that's about cultural origins um, of the drugs. So it's like what I said, you know, it's having strings to our therapies at bows who offer people. As to the relative role of set, set and setting, um, I, I, I'm sure it's it's impossible to disambiguate. I, it, it's all of this. I tend to think of psychedelics like super placebos. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they moderate the cognitive mechanisms that generate expectancy um, themselves. So in that context, if you're trying to separate them out and establish what's expectancy, what's drug, you'll you'll never do it because it's it's in there. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rucker, thank you so much for this very stimulating talk again, and uh, thank you for we'll we'll allow you to get to your dinner as we're about to go to our breakfast, and uh, glad that we could make this connection work across the ocean, and yeah. uh, continue the the good and important work you're doing in this uh, interesting field of research. Thanks very much, Jesse, and um, pleasure to speak to you. Have a good day. You as well. And uh, take care, the rest of you. For uh, We'll be off for spring break next week, and we'll uh, resume on the 29th for a talk on palliative care. Look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.